You know, my grandfather was not allowed to be in the choir, and he was disappointed. But later on, he honestly believed that God gave him, he prayed, and God gave him the ability to, uh, God gave him the ability to sing. And unfortunately, God did not give him the ability to sing, but he believed that. And uh, my grandfather used to sing all the time on the farm, and there was actually people who would sit in the back of his van. I don't know what you have, the, we call it a bucky. So you got the... In, in America is where you got the pickup or something, I don't know. And uh, they'd sit in the back for hours and not be in the front because that old man sings. And I remember <laughs> I used to sit with my grandfather and we're the only two unmusical people that had this ability to sing two hymns at the same time <laughs> next to each other and not care about each other. He would be Amazing Grace. I would be uh, <laughs> a Rock of Ages or something like that. And we'd really, really love each other as we sang. Um, no, that's not everybody. I, I've had people, there was one place I sang in front of a church and this old lady uh, entered the fridge. She came to the front, but she was hobbling, you know, like with a stick. And she slowly walked to the front and she said, Sonny, she said, somebody's got to tell you that you must never sing in public ever again. And that was very encouraging. And little children can do the same. You know, I, I, uh, I was at one camp, I think it was, and, and this one little child came up to me and said, you know, you have the ugliest voice that I've ever heard in my entire life. And then I was feeling down, and this other little child came up to me, not knowing what the other child had said, and said, my, it's not right that someone has such a nice voice. And I was like, you're a nice little kid, aren't you? I like that. <laughs> but I, I once in South Africa went, we call them lifts, you call them elevators, because Americans are backwards. And... Um, I remember going into this elevator and I was, I'd been singing uh, on this, visiting some people and I was singing and the elevator opened. I got in, we went down one floor, the door opened, this guy came in, he looked around at us and uh, as we were going down, he said, did you hear that person singing up there? He said, it was awful. <laughs> well, of course that was me. <laughs> the best was I once had a dream and, and I'm not very clever when I'm awake, but when I sleep, I'm a genius and... I remember sleeping and dreaming, and I was singing out of my heart, and it was so wonderful. This really happened in the dream. And this guy walks up to me, and he says, Roy, you got a beautiful voice, beautiful voice. And it was nice, yeah? And then he said, but there's nothing wrong with resting it. And I woke up, and I'm like, how could someone be that clever in a dream <laughs> to insult me <laughs> like that? But anyway, I noticed some people have left. You know, in Africa, it gets way more complicated than here. Um, I don't know if you've noticed in the Bible how that you've got the different list of the apostles and they change their names sometimes and you've got different names in different places. In fact, Jews, it was commonplace for them. What's strange to us, it was extremely commonplace for Jews to have some event in their life or somebody say something to them and they'd change their name. And that would be chaos here because, I mean, imagine you were part of a university or a college or you're working somewhere and one day you're John and the next day Paul is working for you. Um, just logistically, it would be a bit strange, but that's exactly what we face in many African countries. Because like the people in the Middle East, many African nations believe that if anything happens, like your mother dies or your cat is sick or your, a few of your cattle die, then you, your name is going to change. And so they will literally go to the government and they will change their, the name in their passport and their ID to the new name. 
And so I was lecturing at a Bible college where they had 11 different nations coming together to this Bible college, different languages, different interpreters, very interesting. And it was very hard for the staff there because literally every, they only had about 90 students, but about 45 every year would change their name. And, and so this guy would be marking Paul in Solobulo or whatever, and, 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 and then a few months later, they'd come home from holiday and there would be a John in Sokipoulos. And it looks the same handwriting as, as, as Paul was, but it's, it's John. And, and it would be totally confusing because literally they'd have to change the names and all their things all the time. So you must thank the Lord that you're in America. There's a lot of things to be thankful. I've been in countries in Africa with a national... Um, list of, of telephone numbers, they randomly changed a few of the numbers, so not one of the numbers that you can look up in a book ever work. And um, yeah, it's interesting, very, very interesting. But I don't know why I went down that long trail, but I do know that we're going to have a sermon now. So if you can open up your Bibles to Romans 8 verse 15, oh, I remember, it's because, you know why I, I was talking about that? A lot of people leave every meeting, and then there's new people, and so you guys have new names and new faces, and I'm getting confused. So you're just like Africa. <laughs> okay, we're going to read this verse, and then we're going to pray. Romans 8, verse 15. Now, this is one of the most wonderful verses in the entire Bible. Not only is it most, one of the most wonderful verses in the entire Bible... But I hope with all my heart it is one of your favorite verses. And if it isn't, then I hope by the end of the sermon it will be life-changingly a favorite verse of uh, you guys. I trust God. And I have preached a similar sermon before a few times. And it has been amazing. The souls that have been saved, the lives that have been changed, the, the victory. It, it staggers me that God could... You know what is amazing to me about God? He used fish to speak to fishermen. He uses plants to speak to farmers. He, 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 one preacher in South Africa said he can use anything. He can use a pot plant. And he said in his case, he used the popochai, which is a Dutch word for a parrot. God can use anything. <laughs> and he uses simple things. He doesn't explain like a scientist the molecules and the compounds and the intricate nature of everything out there. He uses simple things to teach us the great things of Scripture and, and it's absolutely amazing. So this is a very simple sermon. And that's one of the reasons it amazes me how God in mercy works in his power through simple concepts. So let's read this together. Romans 8, excuse me, verse 15. We read there, For ye have not, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, which means Father, Father. Now, years back, again, this years back, it's all relative to how old you are, but let's say about 18 years back, I was in Germiston, South Africa, and a suburb of Germiston is Boxburg, and I was at what we call mission headquarters there. It's actually a city, so it's not less of a mission and more of a, a central base from which we worked out. And I remember being there for a few years, and so when I came back from preaching at schools and orphanages and things like that, I had a little rest time, and I got hold of a little book. And the book was one of those many books you have on what do Muslims, what do Muslims believe. 
And so I started, like I say, 18, 17, 18 years back reading this book. And as I read it, I remember sitting in my bed like a lazy missionary. And I was sitting in my bed and I I started to cry. Because I started to realize what we as Christians, those of us who are truly born again, what we have in Christ that Muslims do not have. And how precious it was for what we have in Jesus Christ. You see, there are 99 beautiful names for Allah, and not one of them is love. God to them is such a sovereign God, a God who sends certain people to hell and certain people to heaven at his will, uh, that you can never know God, and they would never dare to call God Father. And that's why when I read this verse, it's so precious. Romans 8 verse 15, for we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry. We can cry. It's in our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit. Those of us who are born again, cry out to God. What a Muslim, over 1 billion Muslims cannot cry. Father, Father. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) You know, there's a freedom in Christ which the devil desperately wants to and manages to keep many Christians from. There's a freedom in Christ, which is very precious. Off the bat, though, I'd like to say it's not a freedom to sin. You know, there's a lot of people, they have this umbrella over their head and this uh, called grace. And um, they say, well, I've been saved now. I've asked Jesus into my life. And so I've got this umbrella over my head and I stand under grace. And so God looks down and under this umbrella, I lie, steal, commit adultery, do basically whatever I want to do, and that's perfectly fine because God cannot see me. Now, that's a disgrace. You can go into a lot of verses through the Scripture in Romans and Titus all over to prove that that is stupidity. It's not truth. It's a disgrace. But even so, even though there's a false liberty that is preached out there, there is a true liberty in Christ, which Satan wants to keep us from. In fact, he is an expert. He is an absolute expert. If you sit down with people who've truly been saved, have all the fruit of of what it is to be a saved person, and later on in their life, they've come into things which bring them into bondage as Christians. They lose their liberty that God wanted them to have in Christ, and it's a terrible thing. You know, in South Africa, I remember, I, I'm not going to give you the whole story, but there was a man, for instance, he's a very good friend of mine, and he's a wonderful missionary, and he used to be part of what we call street work in South Africa. He used to go, and he used to, after he was saved, he had the joy of the Lord, and he'd walk up to people all of, late at night, and he'd be with other people, three or four witnesses, and they would be doing what street preachers do in America, there was actually an organization that did that in South Africa, and he would preach to many people uh, very bravely, and he loved the Lord. But then he started to listen to Satan, and he started to listen after a few years to lies of Satan, and he started to go into bondage and into darkness. And eventually this person who had freedom and was full of the joy of the Lord and was a witnesser, he went up a mountain, and he started to take much of his clothes, when I say his jerseys off, his outer garments off, so that he could... Uh, be cold so that he could prove to God that he was spiritual. And he started fasting in weird ways, and, and he really chastised himself as he went into bondage. There was a preacher in America that I was in his church years back. And I remember as a young child, I wasn't saved, but he preached with what seemed like anointing, and he preached the truth, and he loved my dad. And he was uh, the herald of his coming. Um, it would use him as as one of the main um, 
uh, writers, and, and, and he rarely seemed to be used to God. But then there came a point when he started to listen to Satan and to listen to lies of Satan, and he started to go into bondage, and eventually through these lies and darkness, he left his church and he went to some woods, and he stayed in those woods, <laughs> a forest, <laughs> in a little hut as a hermit, because he was in such bondage after about 40 years of being used of God, it seems, he went into darkness. Satan is an expert to do this. Now, I'm not going to go deeply into this, because it's, it's, it's almost like the foundation, the, the direction that we're going in, but I... I just like to mention a few ways in which Satan brings Christians, starts to bring Christians into bondage. Very simple things. Satan doesn't have to use a big thing to start to bring you into darkness. Uh, he bites away at the little chaps. And uh, I remember at Bible college 20 years back, I was at Bible college, and I remember there was this guy, he's dead since then, he died in a car accident, but he had the most amazing mind. He could stand up and preach and remember stuff without almost any effort. And he was an amazing public speaker. And he was very good at sport too. And you know, table tennis and, 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 and kicking a ball and things like that. Very fast runner. Nice guy. Uh, but he read Charles Finney's life. And when he read Charles Finney's life, now a lot of people have been brought into bondage. A lot of revivals have broken out through Charles Finney's life, but a lot of other people have been brought into bondage through Charles Finney's life, depending on which part of his uh, sayings they took to. But anyway, so he read here and he saw Charles Finney used to not prepare his sermons. But Charles Finney used to simply uh, trust God and uh, that, so that basically when he stood up in front of people without even having chosen a verse, this was his early ministry, he would basically suddenly find a verse, he'd stand up, he'd preach and he'd trust God that in the middle of his message God would work and people would come under conviction and people would get saved. And amazingly in some places it worked. And so my friend, he was reading this and he said, wow, this is it. If we want to have revival, then there is a way we're supposed to preach that is not legalistic and we trust God and we trust the Holy Spirit. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray and read my Bible, but when it comes to preaching, I'm going to stand up, I'm going to get a verse, I'm going to preach a sermon I didn't prepare, and, and I'm going to trust God to come down and work. And so on the weekends, we used to preach, we used to preach uh, open-air preaching, and we used to go to prisons, and he was going to prison to preach, and they're in the prison he was preaching, and he would just get a verse, and he had this amazing ability, and he'd preach, brrr, and in the middle of the sermon, bang, amazingly, people would start to cry, and some of them, it seemed, got saved, and later on, were still saved. It was amazing. And then he came back to our college, and he would sit down with all the men, and he said, I remember sitting with them, and he looked around them with gravity in his eyes and face, and he said, listen, there's only one way for God to bring revival. Sometimes he used to copy my dad. Only one way for God to bring revival, and that is that you have to, when you prepare your sermon, you must trust God to do the work, not be legalistic and, and get illustrations and, and have a sermon worked out before. And you've got to just basically stand up and trust God and get a verse and brrr, and in the middle you just, God's going to come because you trust him and God works. And I looked around me, I was amazed, even as a young Christian, as I looked around at the other brothers, how they started to go into bondage. 
Literally, from that week onwards, I saw them feeling bad if they ever got a little illustration from somewhere. In fact, they think, should I use it? Shouldn't I use it? Because I don't want to do the work of the Holy Spirit by actually using an illustration from somewhere. One person came up to me. They weren't, it wasn't just darkness. They were feeling down as if they were sinners. One person came up to me even years later, influenced by this, and came, said to me, Roy, I, I, I've got this illustration from a book. And I don't know if I'm supposed to be able to use it in my sermon because it's, it's not just, you know, the Lord giving it to me in the sermon. It was interesting. I said, rubbish, you can use an illustration from some other person. Anyway, sometimes I try not to laugh when people are in bondage, but it, it, it is very sad because to them it's a big thing. I mean, it's connected to their conscience and they feel like a sinner. Now let me ask you a question. Do you know how Deal Moody prepared his sermons? How many of you have studied that? I mean, you, anybody here bored, then you'll study such things. Um, Deal Moody was not like Charles Finney. In fact, Deal Moody, when he prepared his sermons, he got a big table. And on this table, he used to get illustrations, hundreds of illustrations on a topic that he would um, get copies of, cut out of books, put it all over the table, and he decided on the very best ones from all over, and he put them together in his sermon. He even used to have a Bible that he used to cut out. Now, it's like we sometimes print out uh, nowadays uh, um, the Bible verses, so we don't have to look it up. Uh, he would actually cut out the Bible verses so that he could uh, his sermons could flow better. Now, <laughs> I have a very simple question for you guys. Simple. Did God look down at Deal Moody, and I say this with all reverence when dealing with God, did God look down at Deal Moody and say, Deal Moody, I am so sorry. I cannot use you because you're not like Charles Finney. You, you don't just uh, trust me and stand up with, up with no preparation and, and just get a verse when you preach and, and then go with all the things that come to your head and trust me to come in the middle of the message and then I come. I, I'm sorry, dear Moody, uh, I can't use you. And of course, the answer is that God mightily used dear Moody. In fact, there were places where, like I've mentioned uh, uh, at the home that I'm at, Mr. Vinoy and so on, um, where Deal Moody would preach where Charles Spurgeon had no effect. Deal Moody preached and atheists would get radically saved. And afterwards they asked, why did God use Deal Moody and, and not as much as Charles Finney at those places? And Deal Moody said, oh, not him, but sorry, the atheist would say, because never man spake with such love for my soul. Never man spake with such love for my soul. God used him. He read through the Bible over 400 times, Deal Moody. He studied his Bible. He prayed for hours, but he was not like Charles Finney. And God still used both of them. George Miller, I've met people amazingly who, again, in history, there was a, the, the Ulster revival, which led to over 100,000 people radically saved between 1861 and um, 1904. Um, the 15 years of revival in Wales. Um, George Miller was the reason why many of those revivals broke out because people would read his book on prayer and they'd say, if God can do this for George Miller, then God can do it for me. But there are other people, and I remember Satan came to Jesus, what with? The word of God. Now, if you can come with the word of God and, 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 and try to mess people up, you can come with famous preachers. 
And so I've met people and many people who have been brought into bondage by the words of George Miller. You see, George Miller had seven steps before he would go through before he would know something was God's will. So any major decision and many middle decisions in life, um, he would literally go through these seven steps. And if something didn't happen uh, that he expected in these seven steps, then he wouldn't do that thing. And so I've met people who are in bondage to the will of God in the sense that they were scared, literally shaking, to go across the road to hand out a tract in case it wasn't God's will that they would hand out a tract. Some people, some churches pray seven months before they choose an elder. And some places that's, that's commendable, but they don't even simply apply what the Bible says in choosing it. They're so afraid they'll go out of the will of God. How many of you have heard of Samuel Morris? Put up your hand. You'd think so. Yes, you mustn't be racist. Eh? He was an African. And, and Samuel Morris, uh, as you'll know, there's different versions of stories of him, but he basically escaped from the, the tribe that had captured him. And uh, I'm going to summarize his story, but he went to a... Methodist, I think, mission station, and there he heard the gospel. So, yes, he did see a light when he was set free. It seemed to be like Jesus, but he did hear a clear rendition of the gospel from the mission station. And there he heard that in America, across the seas, there was a guy that knew about the Holy Spirit better than the missionaries, and there was quite an expert on the topic. And he was so excited that somebody knew about the Holy Spirit uh, uh, more than these missionaries that he wanted to see this person. He wanted to go deeper with God. And so he did not go through seven steps to find out if it was the will of God. As soon as he knew this person existed, he literally started running, and he came to the beach. And there at the beach, he saw a ship. Now, he'd learned some European language from being at the mission station, and so some uh, captain and a few people came on a boat to the shore and, and they, didn't, they weren't looking for him, but they came there for something else. And, and he said to the captain, can I come on your ship and go with you to America? And the captain said, no. <laughs> now, for three days after that, Samuel Morris prayed. But he did not pray. He did not pray, God... <laughs> Please tell me if it's your will that I should go to America. You know, I was a bit impulsive. You know, I just ran. I didn't even ask you was that will. I just ran to the beach and I asked this guy and he said, no, maybe you're telling me that I shouldn't go to America. God, please give me your will. That's not what Samuel Morris did. Samuel Morris said, God, change the mind of that captain <laughs> for three days. And after three days, the captain came to the shore, picked him up and said, okay, you can be the cabin boy. And there on that ship, now this is the question I'd like to ask with all reverence said. Did God look down at Samuel Morris and say, Samuel Morris, I'm sorry, I cannot use you because you're not like George Miller. George Miller was a man of God. George Miller had seven steps he always went through before he thought something was God's will. And I'm so sorry, um, Samuel Morris, I just... I, you don't have that faith and that dedication that George Miller had. I can't use you. The answer, of course, is that God mightily used Samuel Morris. In fact, on that ship that had 
no one was saved, but all of them were swearing and drunk, and, and there was murderers on board that ship, and those who wanted to murder Samuel Morris. Over the next few months, he so lived Christ towards those people that most of them got saved. And not only that, they were singing hymns by the end of the trip. They wanted to murder him the first bit, some of them. But towards the end, though, they used to whip him. At the end, they wept when he left that ship. And not only that, when he came into uh, the college that he went to in America eventually, and he died there, he would sometimes sit at the back of a church. He never preached. He spoke his testimony, but he, he sat at the back of churches, and he would pray. And as he prayed at the back of a meeting, God would come, and there would be true revival in which souls were saved. God mightily used Samuel Morris. I think the best example of this in the Bible is, is the difference between Ezra and Nehemiah. I don't know if you know about this, but Ezra was a wonderful preacher. I loved him. I would never do what he did, though. I like Nehemiah. He's much more practical. But Ezra, in, in, in chapter 9, verse 3, he was facing a situation where you have uh, the Israelites having married heathen people, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Egyptians, etc. And they married into these people God said you shouldn't marry into. And, and he was down about this. I mean, we've just come out of captivity because of God punishing us for sin. And now look, you're doing the, same, you're doing the things that we got punished for before. And Esther did something very interesting. I don't know how many ministers of this dedicated. You don't have hair on your head to do this, but he literally ripped his hair off. Have you, have you seen a dedicated minister like that, ripping his hair off? How many of you would do that because you were so broken over the sin of America? I wouldn't, just to be honest. I might weep and cry, but I, might, I wouldn't rip my hair off. Uh, and Nehemiah, about 30 to 50 years later, he was way more practical. He was facing the same situation, basically. Uh, they took them wise of Ashtov, of Ammon and Moab. And he was so broken because they'd sinned again. And, 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 and he decided that, but he was practical. Now, this is a very good, if you're going to teach young people to preach, tell them to be rather like Nehemiah because it uh, helps you preserve your looks and so on. Because he went among the people. He didn't pull out his own hairs. He went among the people and pulled out their hair. Now, that makes sense to me, doesn't it? I mean, it's much better than, than, than you know, giving pain to yourself. They're the ones that sinned. <laughs> I'd like you to notice something, though. God did not, the people did not react in a different way to the two preachers at different times. In fact, in both cases, they seemed to reform and in a way repent to two different personalities. And this is something we have to understand. Satan plays with this, but different people have different personalities and abilities, and it does not make you less or more spiritual. Sin does make you less spiritual, but your personality and your ability does not. Please, young children, do not pull out anybody's hair when you see them sinning. <laughs> yeah. Satan to me, and this is an illustration, is very much, and you see this in the Old Testament with the Old Covenant and even in the New Testament, Satan can't touch us spiritually as long as we walk with God. Curses are turned into blessings. Unless you sin, then you're cursed. And, and in a sense, Satan is like a murderer and he's standing there with a gun. And those of us who have Jesus, our, our bodies might be broken up and beaten and burned uh, uh, by people, but Satan can't reach a soul. 
And he's like a murderer who hates us. He hated us from the beginning. He literally uh, wants to hurt us with every ounce of his body and breath of his being. And he stands there with a gun, but there's no ammunition. And every little bit of ammunition that you give him, I guarantee you, he will use to hurt you. Every little bit of ammunition that you give him, he will use to hurt you. He's waiting for you to give him ammunition to hurt you. In 1 Peter 5 verse 8 it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion seeketh about, uh, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Satan wants to destroy people, some through sin and some through legalism and some through taking away their liberty, but he absolutely knows and wants to destroy people. Now, I'd like to say today, and remember this, if you forget everything else in this message, remember this. One of the most dangerous pieces of ammunition that you can ever place into the hands of Satan to shoot you with, to hurt you with, is your feelings. Let me repeat that. One of the most dangerous pieces of ammunition that you can ever give to Satan to hurt you with is your feelings. I, I like to say, and this is not directly in the Bible, but we'll get to verses that are directly in the Bible. I like to say as a saying, there are two things as far as the east is from the west. The one is your sins from God when he's forgiven you. And the other is indirectly in Scripture, and that is your feelings from your faith. You see, basically, when uh, what the devil wants you to do is to connect your faith to your feelings. So let's say he has your faith, he has your feelings. And now when you feel up, or well, God's happy with me, and I'm right with God, and I've got faith, and everything's going well. But when I don't feel well, well then God obviously doesn't like me. And uh, nothing's going to happen because I don't have faith, etc. And I can guarantee you that if you do this, if you allow Satan to connect your faith to your feelings, you will go through struggles as a Christian that you did not have to go through. That you did not have to go through. The old, the old preachers, I'm going to get to some revivalists soon, their thoughts on this topic. But the old preachers used to use the illustration of, of, of a tower, like a pyramid with three layers. And they said, at the bottom layer, we're supposed to have God's word. And we believe it because of the person behind it, the person who spoke. And on top of this, we have our faith, which is placed on God's word. And then lastly, above, we have our feelings, which come and go and change. Sometimes we feel peace, sometimes we don't. But the foundation is God's word. Now imagine for a moment that the foundation that we used was our feelings. And on top of that, we put our faith, and at the very top, we took God's word and who he is. <laughs> and basically, it'll be a wobbly jelly tower. It would be terrible. And that's exactly what it is to many people out there. Now, there are people, and this is actually a truth. Many people say, but wait a minute. Aren't I supposed to feel bad when I lie, steal, commit adultery, do something bad? Aren't I supposed to feel bad when the Holy Spirit works in my life? And the answer is yes, you should. Uh, beyond that, whether you feel bad or not, you should stop doing it, which is actually more important. Uh, but in the Bible, you have several types of consciences. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, you, you've got the defiled conscience in Titus. You've got the weak conscience in Corinthians and in Romans. You've got the seared conscience, which is in 
uh, Timothy. And of course, you've got the sound conscience. And what's interesting is uh, in the old days, some of the old revivalists who had drunkards getting saved and so on, they said every time you have a voice in your heart which tells you you're doing something wrong, it is God. And that's just not true because they don't understand consciences. In fact, uh, they say your conscience is always God's voice because your conscience depends on what it's linked to. If your conscience is linked to standards where you think it's wrong to marry, where you think it's wrong to eat sweets, where you think probably it is wrong to eat sweets, but anyway, I like it, uh, and, and you think it's wrong to, to not walk up a mountain with very little uh, warm clothing so that you can uh, um, basically <coughs> impress God, well, then your conscience will lose its peace when you don't do these things. Because it's linked to that. That's a weak conscience. That's a defiled conscience, as in Titus 1, where, where things become sin, basically. And then you've got a seared conscience, which is actually a false prophet, but it's a conscience. You know when you sear it with those hot irons? Basically, you don't feel it anymore after it's been seared. And so you can kill people. And I've met people like this who literally would crush your head in their hands, and they wouldn't feel bad because... Because they've got a seared conscience. You've got people who at the beginning feel bad when they sleep around. I sat down with a young person. I'm not going into the details, obviously, but he had a girlfriend. He was doing evil with it. He said, at the beginning, I felt bad, and then I felt less bad. But I don't even feel even slightly bad now when I do sin. My conscience, his conscience has been seared. And so you can lose your peace for doing things which actually is not sin, and you can have peace when you shouldn't have peace when you're sinning. And that's why God wants us to connect our conscience to the Word of God in context. And the more we do that, the more the Holy Spirit can correctly work with us, the more our conscience is connected to the Word of God. I say in context, that's very important, because out of context, it could be anything as far as what is right and what is wrong. So with that in mind, with all these things in mind, I like to get practical at this moment. Again, years back, I was preaching at a conference in America. And being Roy Daniel, you'll know, I, I get a lot of people to attend my meetings because I forget my shoes at the previous place. They use it as an excuse to come a few hours to come listen to the next message. And God bless them. <laughs> but I'm a little absent-minded at times. And uh, that's why I've got a wife. She's wonderful. Um, but I sometimes forget to eat breakfast. Or at least I used to. And I remember being at this camp and I got up excited in the morning. I was going to preach that day. And, and, and I wanted to go out and I wanted to pray for an hour or two. And, and so I forgot to eat breakfast. And, and I went out the door and I was going to first sing hymns for about at least half an hour. And then I was going to pray and come back. And as I was singing hymns, uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed this if you don't eat breakfast. Maybe you guys are... are or something that don't feel this, but but I I, I didn't remember I didn't know I hadn't eaten, but my stomach started speaking to my head, and it started saying there's something wrong. In fact, as I walked there, I felt absolutely nothing. I just felt depleted, and I was trying to sing and sing to God, and I felt absolutely nothing. And and I say Satan, a demon, whatever thoughts came to my head, and said, you know, Roy, God's not going to hear you singing. This is worthless what you're doing because you don't have a feeling of faith. And because you don't have a feeling of faith, God's not going to hear you. He's actually not pleased with you right now. You have to have faith, my son. <laughs> At any rate, after a while, my memory started working again. And I remembered, oh, yeah, I haven't eaten breakfast. And so I started, I, I sang for a while, came back praying. And I had this, this plate in front of me. Now, <laughs> man, 
Americans can make good breakfast. Anyway, there was sausage and oh, was everything. And I started to eat it. And as I ate it, feelings started to go through my body. I mean, I had peace going through my nose and through my toes and through my fingers. It was wonderful. But I'd like to say something <clears throat> practical. I don't believe that God was not there and not listening to my prayers when I was walking down the street and I hadn't eaten and I felt very depleted and actually felt nothing. And I don't believe that after I ate and I had peace going through my body, that suddenly then after that, God would listen to my prayers. In fact, I believe God, and we, I know it from experience, from answers to prayer, was hearing those prayers because his words said so in Isaiah. It says, thou meetest him that has amazing feelings. No, thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. <laughs> No feelings. I remember in South Africa, I remember in South Africa, I had a night of prayer. I struggled with nights of prayer, but I had a few of them. And I remember this one night of prayer with some missionaries. We were praying through the night. And after about three, for the first three hours, after about an hour into it, I started to weep over the souls of men. And I was crying before God. And I was just groaning and asking God to be merciful in the souls of men. But then several hours later, about three o'clock in the morning, I was feeling very tired. I wasn't so tired that I didn't know what I was praying. Then you should go to bed. But I was tired enough that I didn't feel anything. I didn't have this amazing groaning or weeping or anything. It was just I am laboring in prayer and I know what I'm praying for because it's important. But I'd like to say something. I believe with all my heart and from experience it's true. That God did not only hear the prayers when I was weeping and feeling amazing, groaning and brokenness over the souls of men. And then a few hours later, he did not hear me anymore. He heard me just as much. Because I came through him. Now, I'd like to give a little illustration. Imagine you were my daddy. Keith Daniel. And... Uh, Keith Daniel, when I was a little boy, I went to public school and my dad used to get me chocolates. He used to... He's say interesting things about chocolate, so I won't go into that right now. But anyway, my dad, um, listen, my dad said to me, when you come out of school, I'm going to get you a chocolate. And so I came out of school, and I got in the car, and we drove home. And at home, he took out a chocolate from the fridge or wherever, and he held it out to me as a little child. And let's say I'm eight years old. And imagine as he's giving me that chocolate, I go... <laughs> and I started running away from him without the chocolate. And I ran into my room and I was crying. <laughs> and my dad, he's kind of a serious guy sometimes. He goes after me. He's wondering, why is he crying? And he comes to the room. And there I am. And I'm weeping on my bed. And my dad says, why are you crying, Roy? And I said, Daddy? I don't believe you're going to give me that chocolate. And my dad says, why, why don't you believe that I'm going to give you that chocolate? Because I don't have an amazing feeling of peace and faith that comes out of my ears and nose and just tells me you're going to do what you said. Now, my dad would... Apart from giving me a spanking, he would he probably said to me, you know, Roy, the reason you can know that I'm going to give you that chocolate, my boy, is because 
I said so, and I'm not a liar. It's the man behind the word. And we can laugh at that little child, but you know how many Christians across this world, in conservative movements especially, do that to God? They know it's wrong, but they do it because it's just so natural to do. They believe their feelings before they believe God. You know what an insult that is to God? God, I don't believe you. I believe my feelings. If you think about that for a moment, that's an insult. <laughs> A.W. Tozer said, A.W. Tozer said, faith depends on the character of God. R.A. Torrey, D.L. Moody's writer, a man said, do not look at your feelings. Do not look at your feelings, but at God's promise. D.L. Moody said, do you think you can control your feelings? Bear in mind, <coughs> Satan can change your feelings 50 times a day. He just gave a number. But he cannot change, listen to this, the word of God. And D.L. Moody used an illustration, and uh, I change it slightly. He used um, uh, um, mud, but I, I use water. Now imagine you're at sea, and, and there's this, uh, you're basically drowning. You're in the water, and you're drowning, and you need to get somewhere and get out of the water. And Satan comes to you. And he says, yeah, is an answer. He said, yeah, is a plank. Stand on this plank. It's called feelings. And so you're desperate and you, you want to get out of this, this struggle of being a, a drowning and you put your feet foot up and you put the next foot up and you try to stand up and flips. It's out from underneath you. And Satan comes back and he says, my dear, he has the plank again. And so you go and you try to put your foot on it and you put your other foot and, and you try to stand up and flips. It's gone from underneath you. And you just do that again and again and again. And then he said these words, I want to give you something much better to stand on. He said, come and stand on the rock of God's word. I mentioned to the brother just earlier today that Charles Spurgeon had an illustration where he talked of the ark. And he said, if you're in Noah's ark and, and you, the flood is across the world, if your feelings feel wonderful with the... Does that mean that the ark goes higher? And he says, if your feelings, you feel a bit down that day and your peace goes away from you or whatever you want to call it, does that mean the ark starts to sink? <laughs> he said, your feelings can go up and down, but the reason you're afloat is you're in the ark. That is your confidence. Charles Spurgeon had 600 people praying downstairs as he preached. His sermons in their written and typed out printed forms were spread more than any preacher since Paul across the world and radically many people were saved more than any other printed sermon since the Bible, Paul and Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And you would think a person who was so anointed and had people praying for him and was a prayer warrior that he would always have amazing peace and a feeling that drove him to the pulpit to stand up and to preach broken over the sins of men. And he had times like that. But there were times when Charles Spurgeon said, I do not always feel saved, but I know I'm saved because God's word says it and because he experienced salvation. Those feelings since then went up and down. You see, the problem is, and Satan is clever at this, when you have no amazing feeling, then you think, I don't have faith. And then you read a verse in the Bible, Hebrews 11, verse 6, and it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
because, and it says, um, <clears throat> for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a reward of them which diligently seek him. And you read that verse and you think, wow, I don't have a feeling of faith, therefore I'm not pleasing God because I don't have faith, so what's the use? And I've seen so many young Christians, they get saved, there's fruit, and then later on they start to struggle with this and they have a quiet time in the morning and because when they, when they open up their Bible, they don't have an amazing feeling of faith, they feel God's not going to bless them because they're not pleasing God and so they start to have shorter and shorter quiet times and reading the Bible and praying because they're looking for a feeling instead of seeking for God himself. I'd like to read a verse and ask a question, two verses. 1 John 5, verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And we know that he, if he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Now, I want to ask a simple question today. Does this verse say, these two verses say, this is the confidence that I have, that if I have amazing feelings of peace going out of my ears and my nose and my toes that tell me that God's going to listen to me, then I know that he hears me and that he, uh, we know then that we have the petitions that we desire of him. No, it doesn't say this. It says, and this is the confidence we have in him, not in our feelings, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us and we know that we have the petitions that we ask of him. And so at this point in the sermon, I want to ask the question, what is it in every single one of us? What is it in us that wants to feel before we believe? And the answer, of course, is the flesh. It's actually our pride. Pride looks to self, not to God. And your feelings are in yourself. <laughs> in that, Naaman, I don't know how to pronounce that in American. How do you pronounce Naaman? Naaman, okay, Naaman, he was the guy with leprosy. <clears throat> Sorry, he didn't have, yeah, I used to say he had cancer and then people were laughing. Anyway, he had leprosy. <clears throat> and I'm going to uh, um, summarize this story. You all know it. But basically there was a little uh, servant, uh, a girl, and she talked about a prophet that could heal her master. And so the king of Assyria uh, um, basically uh, um the king um, sent him with uh, servants and in a chariot and with uh, letters to the king of Israel. And there he came there and the letter basically says that the king is supposed to heal, please heal this person. And, and he um, got very cross and he said, Do I, am I God that I have power to make alive or to kill? You basically want uh, trouble with me? Uh, and he was very cross that he asked him to heal the leper. And so Elisha sent a servant a messenger, and said, let him come to me, and he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. And so he came to the prophet that he should have gone to in the first place. <laughs> and, and Elisha did not come out of his house. He sent Gehazi, and Gehazi was told by him to say to Naaman, go and wash seven times in the river Jordan. Now at this moment, pride came out. Because Naaman said, no, wait a minute. And he got very cross. He said, we've got way better rivers in Damascus. And anyway, I thought the prophet would come out and that he would stand and that he would call upon the name of the Lord his God and that he'd slip his hands or clap his hands over the place and he would heal or recover the leper. Arr, I'm not going to go to this river and just wash. <laughs> Do 
You know, the simple little story is the reason why so many people cannot get saved and is the reason why so many people who are saved cannot experience the depths of God. Because they cannot just wash and be clean. There has to be something big happen. Before I believe God, I'm worthy of this, by the way, but before I believe God anyway, an angel has to appear. Then I'll believe the word of God. I have to have an amazing experience, a feeling, or you've got to give me something to do that's quite amazing, some demonstration. Then I'll believe the word of God. And the servants came to him, and there was one, one or two wise ones, and they said to him, Master, if, if he'd asked thee some great thing, would you not have done it? Why can't you, listen to these words, why can't you just wash and be clean? Why does it have to be something big before you just experience what God is holding out to you? And so he went down and he got in the water and he was healed. Simple. You see, the flesh wants to feel before it believes. The flesh wants a sign before it believes. And the flesh wants to understand before it believes. It's important to understand the basic concepts of Scripture that we don't go down false paths, but much of Scripture is just so simple to understand. And we don't have to understand the Greek and, and know the perfect prayer before we can experience what God is promising. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 22, we see this with the Jews and the Greeks. For the Jews require a sign... And the, uh, sorry, the Greeks seek after wisdom. In other words, the Jews would say, well, before I accept that Jesus is the Messiah and I must believe in him and experience him, uh, you're first going to have to give me a sign and then I'll believe. <laughs> it's not good enough all the Old Testament prophecies, not the word of God. I need a sign, then I'll believe that this is the true Messiah. And the Greeks would say, yeah, you're going to really have to explain this to me backwards. And, and not only that, you're going to have to explain it, that you're going to convince me that it's the truth uh, then I'll believe. And this keeps so many people, like I said, from being saved and from experiencing the depths of the promises of God as Christians. So at this point in the sermon, I'd like to give an illustration. A few little ones. Imagine, you all, got, you all still can imagine as Americans. Um, I hope so. Imagine you're a little boy <laughs> or a little girl, but let's just say it's a boy. And you're outside your daddy's house, your daddy and mommy's house, and you were kicking a soccer ball. So you kicked the ball this way, and it was wonderful, and you got this side, and you kicked again, zoop, and the ball went this side, and you were so excited, and you got the ball, and you kicked it again, bloops, and you kicked it another time, and it went up on the roof. And as it went up on the roof, you're looking up there, and your daddy comes out, and you love your daddy. You really want to do what your daddy says because you love him. He has your heart. It's a good daddy. And, and your daddy comes out, and he looks up, and he sees this ball on the roof. And he says, son, I'm going out for two hours. And when I come back, I want you to have that ball from the roof. And he drives off. And you're sitting there as an eight-year-old little child, and you've got a big problem. You love your daddy. You know what your daddy wants of you. He wants you to get to the roof and get the ball down. But there's no ladder. And not only is there no ladder, there's no way up. There's no vine. There's no windows that you can get to that point of the roof. You can't get up. So you know the will of your father. You want to do it, but you've not got the means to get there. 
Do you know how many Christians year after year hear from the pulpit messages like we should have victory in Christ, we should pray without ceasing, we should be like the old timers, rejoice in the Lord always, all these different things. And they see the standard. They love God because their hearts are changed. They see the standard of what their daddy wants because the preacher is saying what it is, but the preacher never says how to get there. And so they sit there and they want to do God's will and they don't know what to do. Let me give you another illustration, another little child. And uh, I'm sure all of you did this as a child if, if you've got any imagination, but I used to do this. You used to pretend to be an aeroplane. And so you go, you, you, you're the furniture in the house, and you, you're walking around as a little seven, eight-year-old, and you're going, and you're flying everywhere. It's amazing. Anyway, so your dad and mom are there, and they're looking at you, and it's quite comical, and they tell you to stop if you've got to eat or something like that. But anyway, so you're flying around, and then suddenly, story goes, you put your wings down, and you say, Daddy, Daddy, I've got a problem. Daddy, I want to fly. I, I've tried to fly, but I can't fly. So, Daddy, Daddy, how can I fly? <laughs> now, I don't know what you would have done, but the story goes that this father didn't say anything much, but... He went uh, to work for a few days, and after about four days of going to work every day, he came home and he said to his son, come, we're going to come in the car. So the little boy got in the car, got in the back seat, strapped himself in, and they drove off, and about half an hour later, they came to an airport. Hmm. And he got out, and his son wanted to ask questions, but he didn't let him at that stage, and walked him across, and eventually he went up the steps inside with a pilot into a little private airplane and they had two seats at the back and the pilot was at the front with a spare seat and his father and him, they buckled in and they started to taxi across that airport and eventually come to the runway and there at the runway, they started to, the airplane went faster and faster and faster and eventually and they were taking off the ground and going into the air and as they went off the ground and they lifted up, the dad looked down at his son and he said, son, you asked me a question the other day. He said, how can I fly? He said, I'll answer you with three words. In an aeroplane. In an aeroplane. Wow, that was a simple answer. You know, if someone comes to me and says, you know, Roy, I've been saved for a few years and I want to have victory. I want to love God more. I want to pray without ceasing. I want to know that when I have no feelings that God is answering my prayers, I want to have victory. But Roy, I can't. They ask me, how can I fly in my faith? <laughs> you know, the answer is so simple, and yet the flesh that we're born with will fight against this answer with every uh, 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 sense, every little bit that it has, because it hates this answer. The answer is just a few words. In Christ Jesus. And the flesh says, it cannot be that simple. It cannot be that simple. It must be more than that. See, the devil wants to keep us ignorant of our position in Christ. Do you know that Paul, I'm going to read a verse to you and then I'm going to say something about Paul. Colossians 2 verse 6, it says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now, this is not a standard only. The Bible says in 1 John I think 2 verse 6, it says, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked, walking as Jesus walked. 
But this verse says something different. It says we should walk in Jesus. It's not just a standard. And I'll explain that very soon. You see, Paul in the New Testament, St. Paul, what do you want to call him? <laughs> he used the words in Christ and related terms like in whom over 70 times. In fact, the old preachers used to say this was Paul's message in Christ. And I'd just like to give you a few verses before we make this practical. Just in the book of one book, uh, Colossians, and sorry, Ephesians. Ephesians 1 verse 11, it says, In whom, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. Ephesians 1 verse 7, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2 verse 18, For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. And then a verse I love. It's one of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible. Ephesians 3 verse 12. In whom we have boldness to access with confidence by the faith of him. Not in our feelings we have boldness, but in him we have boldness. Now notice it says we have, we have, we have. <laughs> it doesn't mean that when we are little baby in Christ that we don't have to grow. It doesn't mean that we don't have to learn things. But there are so much riches that we have in Christ the moment we receive him just because we have him. Simply put. So let's go back to that verse, Colossians 2 verse 6, for the second time. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Okay, so now yes, another little illustration. Excuse me for all the little boy illustrations. I was a little boy once. Uh, at any rate, there's a little boy, and this little boy is in a poor family, mommy and daddy and brothers and sisters. They've got very little money. And he sees in a shop a beautiful bicycle. And he longs for that bicycle. And so he goes to his mommy and daddy who, like I said, were poor. And he says, mommy and daddy, please, can I have that bicycle? And they look at it, and they think of their finances, and they start to save together as a mommy and daddy for the birthday of this little boy. And so at great sacrifice, they buy this beautiful bicycle for the child. And straight afterwards, the father, actually, just before the birthday, he has to leave on a business trip for two weeks. And so he's gone for two weeks, and they didn't have telephones in those days, and, and, and so on. So he didn't have any communication with his wife. He comes home, and he's coming home to his little child. And he's excited because he's thinking to himself, now, I wonder how he enjoyed it. You know, he's, he's probably gone down the road. And I hope he didn't crash yet or hurt himself. You know, uh, some parents are very happy when their children crash for some reason. I've met in America. But anyway, so he's thinking about his little child. And he comes home. And, and imagine he comes to his child and he says, Child, how, how did you enjoy the bicycle? What is it like? And that little child looks up and says, Daddy? I don't know. I haven't driven it yet. Now, 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 I don't know. That is very rare that that happens. But just think about it for a moment. What would you do as a father? You have a child. You're poor. You, your, your child has literally begged you for something. You've sacrificially saved for it. You've given to him. And now you come back after two weeks and your child hasn't even ridden it. You know what I would say to that child? I would say, child, just like you've received this bicycle, now use it. You've got it, but you better start using it. And that 
with all reverence said, is much of what Colossians 2 verse 6 is saying, as ye have therefore received, you've got Jesus, now use what you have in him. Use the riches at your disposal to go deeper with God through Jesus Christ. Use what you have received. Walk in him. Not just a standard. It's using what you have in him to walk. So let's get practical towards the end of the sermon again. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. In the 1800s, Samuel Samuel Logan Brengel, I am getting to the end of my sermon in case you're wondering, just a few more illustrations and verses, but um, Samuel Logan Brengel was, you've all heard of William Booth. Well, Samuel Logan Brengel was the last of the great Salvation Army preachers before they went weird. And um, at any rate, um, Samuel Logan Brengel wrote of a man whose name was Mr. Bramwell. It's not the guy who sounds like that is a cult. Mr. Bramwell in the 1800s was a mighty man of God. He was, used to travel on his horse around England and Wales and so on. And he would preach, and, and hundreds of souls would get saved. And when I say hundreds of souls getting saved, it wasn't like today where they put their hands up uh, because they emotionally swept up, and then everybody gets saved 50 times a year. Um, and literally, lives were changed in a radical way. Drunkards were set free. Religious people had life. It was absolutely amazing how God worked through this man. Uh, not only that, Christians went into victory and had a victory like never before that lasted. And they understood the scriptures from this person. And, 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 and he uh, used to pray six hours a day. How many of you pray six hours a day? I don't know. Anybody? Amazing man. Anointed, used of God. You would think that this person, this person who was so anointed that God used them, that souls in their hundreds were saved and changed, that this person would have an amazing feeling which, which literally drove him to his knees to pray and just told him he has to pray before God for six hours. Do you know what he wrote? He said, I almost always go reluctantly to pray because I was tired from all my traveling. I had to pull myself up to do it. He said, when I prayed, there were hours where I felt absolutely nothing. And then many times God would come in a special way, maybe at the fifth hour, maybe at the fourth hour. Sometimes the whole six hours he felt nothing. Sometimes he felt amazing, the presence of God. And you have to ask yourself the question, what, what kept him on his knees? How did he know as he prayed for hours and hours when he felt absolutely nothing that God was hearing him, what made it worthwhile going down there? He wasn't a Pharisee showing everybody, look how wonderful I am. It was just him and God. You see, he understood a verse that I read to you people. Ephesians 3 verse 12. He understood that Ephesians 3 verse 12 meant this, in whom I have boldness to access with confidence by the faith of him. His boldness to come before God was not his feelings. His boldness was Jesus Christ. He took that bicycle and he rode it. All those things that we read that we have in Christ Jesus. You know, I remember many times through the years walking down the street, 
Sometimes I'm too tired. I'm, I'm, I, you could call me lazy, but too tired to pray at home because I've been traveling so much or something. And so I'll walk down the street to pray because I can keep awake then. And as I'm walking and praying, I feel absolutely nothing. I feel zero. Other days I feel amazing peace. But I'm walking down the street and I feel zero. And I look up to God and I say, God, many times I don't feel anything. And sometimes you're just stating the obvious. <laughs> God, I don't feel anything, but I just want to tell you something. I know you're hearing me. You can say yes, you can say no, but my boldness is not in my feelings. It's not in nature. It's not in my perfection. It's not in the law. It's not in some experience, God. It's in Jesus, in whom I have boldness to access with confidence by the faith of him. And you know what's amazed me through the years is how many radical miracles happened. In fact, most of the miracles that happened, happened when I prayed feeling absolutely nothing. And trusted God for who he was anyway because of his word. Coming through Christ. In the Bible in 2 Peter 1 verse 3 and 4 it says, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us into glory and virtue. And it says, Whereby given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that by these you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And then it says, therefore, add unto faith, knowledge, virtue, then knowledge, etc., etc. What is God saying here? Do you know how many people, when they look at their, when they look at Jesus, they, they feel like they're missing something? Colossians says we're complete in him. Now, obviously, we're a little baby, and the baby has to grow, and there's many things we can experience as a Christian, which is absolutely amazing, but as far as our relationship with God goes, they feel like Jesus isn't good enough. I, I, I need some law. I need some experience. Not just because God wants me to have those experiences and laws because, it's a, because he commands me, but I need those before I, can, before I can know God deeper. There's something missing. And Satan comes, and he says, yeah, there's something missing. Yes, you can keep the seventh day as a Sabbath. Here's a law you can keep. But hey, guess what? You don't have all those gifts in Corinthians. Um, you shouldn't seek them because they're gifts. You know why you seek them? Because you're missing something. Jesus wasn't good enough. That's, that makes you really spiritual. And Satan comes and he does these things. But they don't realize it's a bit like a house. Imagine you're building a house... And, and, and you've got the foundation laid, which is Jesus Christ, and you have every single brick and every single window and every single hammer and every single screw, and it's all there. You've got it with the foundation. Now all you've got to do is build it. <laughs> That's what God has given us. And so many people feel like they've got the foundation of Jesus Christ, and now they've got to go and find the bricks, and they've got to find the windows, and they've got to find everything and build their house. So Satan comes and says, yeah, you're missing amazing feelings all the time. And you're missing experiences and you're missing, you're missing um, rules. And he connects these things to our conscience. The Bible says that we have given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Everything we need for life and godliness. What? Through the things we still have to experience? No, through the knowledge of him. The fact that we know him means we have everything we need to build the house of Christianity. And therefore, because we've got everything, add unto your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge, etc., etc. Why can you build the house? Because I've given you everything in my son, 
to build it. You say there's something missing, you're insulting my son. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, For all the promises in him are yea, and in him are men, unto the glory of God by us. <laughs> the promises of God are true in Christ. We have them in Christ. Outside of Christ, we don't have them. We have them because we have Christ. Uh, a lot of people say, well, wait a minute. A lot of the promises, a lot of the promises God will only honor if we honor our part. Isn't that true? You honor your daddy and then you live long along on the earth. Potentially, not always. Well, you know something the Bible says something interesting in 1 Peter 2 verse 5? It says these words. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual gifts acceptable to God because you do them absolutely perfectly. No, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Even in Peter, in Psalm 4 verse 5, the sacrifices of righteousness. You know, you can 90% with a heart that's 90% there try to honor your parents. And that is not acceptable to God. But you can 100% try to honor your parents and you still will fail sometimes. And I'll tell you why it's acceptable to God. When your heart is right and you are attempting by God's grace to do what's right and you still fail sometimes, it's acceptable to God because of Jesus Christ. That's why when you obey him, he honors those promises. Charles Wesley said, Charles Wesley said, faith, mighty faith. The promise sees and stands on that alone, laughs at impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. Now, like I said, I was getting to the end of my sermon. I'm on the last page. I'm sure that's an encouragement to some people. <laughs> but I'm ending off with just a few thoughts. One of them is a little song that I wrote. And again, I'm probably not going to sing it to you. <clears throat> but it's called Peter Walked on Water. And it's a lot to do with feelings and stuff like that. But just listen to this. Peter walked on water toward Jesus long ago. He knew that he was walking toward the Savior of his soul. But he took his eyes of Jesus from the place that they should be. And as he looked around him, water swept up toward his knees. And then the chorus, faith is not in the storm around you. It's not in your circumstances, in other words. It's not a feeling in your heart because then you look at it yourself. But it's where you choose to place your eyes while your life is falling apart. And I like to repeat that chorus. Faith is not in the storm around you. It's not a feeling in your heart. It's where you choose to place your eyes where your life is falling apart. Now, if I was to make an appeal here to Christians, I would say that many of you might not, I don't know, but might not have had the ladder to get to the roof where you knew that was my father's that's what my father wants, and I want to get there, but I don't know how to get there. But if someone shows you the ladder of how to apply the riches that are in Christ to have a deeper relationship with God, and you don't go up in the roof, then obviously you didn't want to get up there in the first place. The ball is in your court. When I was a little child, I remember my daddy took me to tennis lessons in South Africa. 
I went to public school and so they had tennis. And so I was such a bad tennis player, he decided to <laughs> take me to tennis lessons. But anyway, I remember this lady had this big machine and the machine used to go pop, 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 with all these balls coming out. And she used to hit me balls too. And I used to stand on the other side of the court. And as the ball came over the net, I used to try. And she told me always, you have to hit it on the other side. And I just tried to do what she said but I saw the neighbor and it was every time it was my I fell for temptation and I smacked that ball over to the neighbor and she got so cross but I just couldn't couldn't not do that for some reason at that age it was too tempting to smack it over the neighbor's fence at any rate the ball in essence is in your court when you hear a message you can either take the one who died for you and the words that, and the message, and the riches that are in him after he rose again, you can say, I'm going to smack it away. You can say, God, I'm going to take this message, and I'm going to apply it to my life, because he's worth it. And so I end off with another song that I wrote. Not every verse. Um, <clears throat> but it goes something like this. Like a child in the hands of its father. I am safe in the hands of my Lord. Through the storms and the trials I may pass through, I can stand on the rock of his word. Precious hands, precious love of my Jesus. Same hands that were pierced for my sins. They're the hands that will hold me and keep me. As I live for my Savior and King. When I think of the way that he suffered on Calvary's cruel tree long ago, of his love never ceasing to glow, precious hands, precious love of my Jesus. Same hands that were pierced for my sin. They're the hands that will hold me and keep me as I live for my Savior and King. When I think of his hands that were pierced there, how worthless my own seem to be. Oh, how little that they have been folded in fervent prayer to my King. Precious hands, precious love of my Jesus, same hands that were pierced for my sins are the hands that will hold me and keep me as I live for my Savior, my King. Let's pray. Father, I know that some of the people who put up their hands in the first message have, I think some of them have left here, Father, <laughs> with their families. I pray that wherever they go and as you work in their lives, that they don't need me to be saved or to make right with God or to have assurance. I ask that as they go, that like Jonah, you won't let them go until they find thee. And like I said, they don't need me, they need Jesus. And that they will find the sweet truth that faith is not in your feelings, but it's just a look, it's just a touch. It's just a, a, a holding on to the word of God. 
And that, that faith doesn't save us, dear Father, but Jesus saves us in answer to that touch, in answer to that uh, look, in answer to our faith. God is the answer to our faith, dear Father, and you save us in answer to it. Help them to understand that, that, that it's not their feelings, it's not their circumstances, it's not where they are. It's Jesus, and he is the response that is the change in it. Our lives and help us as those of us who are Christians, dear Father, to understand that, Father, those sitting here who are still unsaved, that you truly would work true repentance in their hearts, but also to understand the simplicity of faith that is not a feeling and just look into Jesus and that you'll do a work in their life. And those that are saved, dear Father, who are struggling with feelings that go up and down and they sometimes wonder, am I right with God? Am I not? And, and they don't apply the word to see if they're right with God. They apply their feelings to see if they're right with God and just help them to remember that in Christ we have boldness to access with confidence by the faith of him, that we can pray and come before God and when we feel great, when we feel down because we come through Jesus and that there's victory and many other riches in him. Oh, the unsearchable riches of Christ, riches for you and for me. But oh, what a mighty and terrible price was prayed them freely our riches to be. Father, I pray that you would work in the hearts of men. Let this not be forgotten, the simple truth when Satan so plays with people through the ages. Let their rock be Jesus that never changes amidst life storms. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to ask something, brother, if I may. Could we split into little groups and just have a little prayer? about applying the messages and this message to their lives, our lives. And then, obviously, if anybody would like to speak to me, I don't bite. It's a bit serious now, so I'm not going to tell you the story of when I was a little kid and I bit somebody who became my best friend. But that was the last time I bit <clears throat> somebody. If you'd like to speak to me about anything, again, I'm just a normal person. As you can see, <laughs> many failures. I've struggled in life, etc., etc., but... I would love to pray with anybody that needs something to pray for. And don't, again, if there's something serious to pray for, don't let your pride keep you from just having a little conversation. Don't be like my cousin, like I said this morning. Okay, so could we press break up into groups, like four or five groups, and just pray for five to ten minutes about applying this message to your life and also if there's anything else. <clears throat>